0: situation with communication, if you have the facts at your fingertips, don't make the patient or their family work for it. This is a very trying time for them. You've got a magic window of opportunity to build a stronger bridge, particularly if one of the goals is to try and avoid litigation. And let me tell you, if you can do, if you can invest a few minutes with a difficult patient to avoid litigation, the payoff is enormous. We're talking about Money, we're talking about time, we're talking about headache, we're talking about anxiety. Um, all it takes is being deposed one time to realize you don't want to be in the hot seat. And if you could do that just by having a um, a healthy conversation with a patient to answer their questions or their family, why wouldn't everyone do that?
1: And, and it goes back to the story of uh, Doctor Smith with me. If you were never trained, or you're uncomfortable having that uh, revealing medical error conversation, or there's people giving you bad advice, you're not going to do it well. You're, you know, you're going to rush through it, and you're going to come off. Your your nonverbal language is going to come off as defensive. Uh, you know, we do. As I said, we use professional actors to train some of these doctors. We do a whole course in medical errors, uh, and these—what I really like about these actors—and some of them have been on Netflix, they've been on Broadway. I mean, these are real actors, and um, they are trained to just react to whatever they feel, and they're really good at it. Mm. And we'll run two doctors through the same scenario. And uh, medical error—we did one the other day where uh, the doctor patient comes in with uh, bone pain. She's a, a breast cancer survivor, seven years. She comes in with bone pain. The doctor looks at her and realizes that six months ago she had a mammography that showed calcifications and he never saw it. So you have to tell her that, you know, here's your here's your task, tell her you never saw the mammography and now I'm afraid this bone pain might be uh, metastatic. Yeah. One doctor does it and the actors, Freak out on, scream and yell and start talking about malpractice. And then you'll see two or three doctors later on, after we give them some advice, uh, they'll do it again with the same actor. The actor's hugging him and giving, you know, and they're both crying together and it's okay. It goes back to what my mother's saying. It's hard to fire your best friends.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in terms of trying to train these, uh, trained doctors uh, in all portions of their professional career, um, I think the first step is to demonstrate you're a human and understand the pain they're going through. And part of that may just be learning how to say the words, I'm sorry. I I noticed, well, I noted in my married life that in the first X number of years of uh, marriage, unless I thought I was a hundred percent in the wrong, I really struggled to say those two words. And (laughs) had I only um, gone through some type of course beforehand, which basically said saying, I'm sorry, doesn't necessarily mean you're a libel. It just means that I get what you're experiencing right now. And I, I just get it. I understand it. And had I learned that I probably would have, um, probably would have made my life a little bit easier (laughs) i was shocked by the payoff how, how how much the payoff how great the payoff was uh so quickly and so i'm a fan of being able to say the words i'm sorry even if you didn't cause the problem because i do not believe i'm sorry equates with i'm liable i think it just demonstrates to the other individual i this is a this is a A rotten experience for you and it's kind of a rotten experience for me too Uh, but I'm a human you're a human this is a a challenging moment I feel what you feel I want you to know that I'm not going to run away from you what are your thoughts about you know how do you demonstrate this type of empathy and more specifically what are you what are your thoughts on saying the words I'm sorry
1: Yeah, I I fight a lot of the old teachings all the time. And and every now and then I'll be with the doctor and he or she will say, well, I was told when I was a resident never to say you're sorry. And I agree, like, as you know, legally, many states don't even, that's not even admissible in a medical error. But if you're giving somebody a biopsy result, clearly it's not your fault. It's not a medical error i remind i remember the words of the famous rabbi kushner who wrote when bad things happen to good people uh, part in his book he says say you're sorry and then shut up and i love that statement and i tell them you you build up to the news uh, one rule of thumb is that you the patients already know the news is coming by the time you say it you give the news you then you say you're sorry and then you shut up and let them process, and by you sitting there silently, which is incredibly hard to do, uh, you're saying to that patient without saying a word, I'm comfortable, I'm here with you, I'm not leaving, And, and I'm gonna stay with you. And it means so much to the patient, but a lot of times I'll say, did you sit silently? And yeah, I did, well, let's see how many seconds it was. Well, how many seconds do you think it was? Oh, about 20 seconds, four. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's really hard to do, but yes, say you're sorry. And I tell them if you really have a problem, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry that you have to go through this. I'm sorry this happened to you. Uh, it, an interesting uh, note is when we were doing all the interviews, there was a fair number of parents and, and patients who had a problem with the phrase "I'm sorry, I have to tell you this." And now I always say to to Uh, Doctors, you have to understand, people are extremely irrational, right? This is not—they're not at their best. And when you say, "I'm sorry, I have to tell you this," many of them interpret that as, "Damn, if it was just after 7 p.m., it would have been my partner's problem."
0: (laughs) So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, That, that makes sense. Meaning that when they're saying, "I have to tell you that," it becomes about the doctor, not about the patient.
1: Exactly. So we turn that around and we say, "I'm sorry, you have to hear this. I'm sorry that this happened to you," or just, "I'm sorry."
0: Now I did, I paid attention to what you were saying, which is if it's bad news, build up, that is tell tell the story and don't just come out and say, here's the bad news and then support it with documentation. Um, I probably would, and I'd like your opinion on this, I'd probably make a distinction between delivering good news and bad news. So delivering good news, I won't take any issue with that. I, I agree with everything that you said you know, intuitively, You know, kind of build up to it and then ultimately, you know, get your message out, um, but with good news, I think it probably makes sense with just leading. I've got great news, and then yeah. you follow up. Here's why Is why I say that. Getting back to my wife, she um, will occasionally um, weave a tale with uh, over five to ten minutes, and I'm my my take on this is that this is going to be horrible. I, I can't take it any longer. And then she goes, and then it all worked out. And I'm thinking, oh my God, why didn't you just lead with that? And then finally I just blurt out, does this train of thought have a caboose? Um, which isn't <laughs> very isn't very helpful. So I, I, I often say when it comes to good news, um, go ahead and start with the conclusion and then all the details will support that happy conclusion. And that good news and bad news probably gets delivered differently.
1: I agree. Let's get to the point. uh, And and also, I'm a real big advocate and teacher of nonverbal language. So you want to make sure your language, your verbal and your nonverbal is consistent. And yes, if you have good news, you're going to walk in with a big smile and you're going to say, Jeff, I got great news and everybody can relax because now your your goal is to get them to retain as much as possible. So once you say, I have good news, then, okay, I'm all yours. Uh, instead of thinking constantly, what's he about to say? What's she about to say? By the way, my wife
0: does that too. Uh. <laughs> I as such. Yeah, we'll have more to say about that just just a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did it today. So a patient uh, or a, a doctor, client doctor, had um, I, I got the news from the board of medicine saying that the investigation's over. They cleared the doctor 100%. So I just shot out in the subject line: Great news. In the subject line, um, just to avoid having, you know, the doctor's sphincter tighten up, you know. With just, I heard back from the board, you know, and then have. You know, of course, it would just be, you know, ten seconds later getting into the body of the text. But sometimes you you only can see the subject line and not the body of the text, and you'll you'll let it linger for a while when you're mentally ready. At that point, it's like Schrödinger's cat. It's it's half alive and half dead at the same time. So I figured, look, it's great news. I'm leading with it. Uh, yes, I agree hundred percent. Yes. Um, some surgeons ask about attending a funeral, you know, meaning that they didn't necessarily cause the death, but they were part of a, um, you know, the patient, well, maybe they did, maybe in this particular case, the patient um, had a tough condition, but there was a potential great outcome and potential not so great outcome. And in this particular vignette, the patient experienced a not so great outcome and ultimately passed away. And I've heard from doctors saying, "God, I feel horrible for the family. They're they're struggling. I've been speaking with them left and right. Uh, I want to again demonstrate solidarity with them. Uh, the funeral is going to be in town. I I can't. I I would be able to make it. The question is." Should they go, and if so, what signal does it send? And then finally, should you individualize it, meaning that there's not one answer to uh, to that question for all patients in all situations?
1: Yeah, that's something I struggle with. Also, we I've been to m- more than my fair share of funerals, being in neonatology. Uh, for me, it's an individual uh, it's an individual decision. I have to gauge whether the family is very private and maybe really doesn't want outside people there. Uh, I really pride myself and work really hard to build that bond and relationship, especially during the death and dying. Um, and I think you can gauge uh, when, when that is over your relationship with the doctor. Often I will say to them, you know, um, you know, if, if you'll allow me, uh, please let me know where the services are um, and then you can kind of gauge, and if they don't want you there, they don't let you know. Uh, but I think if, if clearly they they uh, they they want you there and they're inviting you there, uh, it's not only good for the parents because they have that closure, good for the family, but what a practice builder. You know, Dr. Siegel, is the greatest doctor that ever lived, and you know he, he came to my husband's uh, funeral. And you only stay a few minutes, uh, but I think, it's, uh, I think it really does help the families. I, I get, uh, I, it's going on 15 years now that I'm getting a Christmas card from a family whose baby died on me. And I, I think out
0: of all the things I've done, I'm probably most proud of that. It is interesting. I mean, that's, that's a message in and of itself. It shows that you successfully navigated that difficult time for them and and they navigated it well through you and, and it delivers dividends years down the road and then helps you too. I mean, I, it's not just a one-way street where you're just giving, giving, giving. I think doctors get from this. I mean, in a sense, it's like the benefit of charity. I mean, you get, there's a high you get from giving. Uh, in fact, that's why most of us went into medicine was to be, you know, was to help people, to be healers, to give back. And I think that when you help patients and their families through such challenging times, you get something out of it too. I think it's a two-way street.
1: I, I agree, and we tend to think of death and dying as, as a failure and there's nothing more that I can do for you. And to me, that's when I uh, you know kind of hit my side if you will. So you know, many years ago, in one of my practices, As I became, uh, I don't know how much I like this title, but now they call me the Breaking Bad News guy. (laughs) And and, and there were.
0: Hire you to break the bad news, meaning. (laughs) They'll just, here you go. As part of a subscription agreement, you'll deliver the bad news.
1: <laughs> I don't know if you, how old you are, Jeff, There's an old Cheers episode where they, they hire Norm to, uh, he, his job is to fire everybody in the, in the company. Uh, well, I'm going to part-
0: answer your question about my age. <clears throat> I know that episode.
1: Okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but I used to, uh, there were a few doctors that I've worked with in the NICU um, that avoided the bad news as much as possible. And, you know, if it had to be done, it was done. But if it could wait, uh, they would wait for me to come on. And, um, and, and their response was, well, Tony's good at this. And at first I used to say, gee, that's really not fair. You know, I'm giving bad news 75% of the time I'm in the you. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started, I realized what a compliment That this is something that somebody's recognized that I'm good at, and that they weren't dumping on me. They were just saying, hey, you know, you're better at it than I am, and I want to do what's best for the family. And so I never thought about it as being dumped on again. And in fact, even to this day, if there's a a death and dying case, uh, I am the, uh, for my practice, I'm the palliative care liaison. Uh, I will always. Uh, take pride in how I handle that uh, and, uh, and volunteer and take care of that baby that
0: time. You know, it's interesting in terms of who delivers the news, who's in the room. Um, sometimes the doctor is alone with the patient or their family, depending upon the situation. Other times a clergyman may be brought into the room or other supporting members of the family. And other times it's risk management from the hospital. and. I think all of those deliver different messages to the family. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I I think it's always good if you can have someone with you, someone that you trust and kind of understands the way that you approach the situation. Hmm. Uh, None of us are always on our game 100%. And so there's a social worker or a clergy that knows how I break bad news um, or a risk manager that uh, works well with me. and maybe I'm not on my game because I'm I'm emotional or because I'm exhausted, I had seven admissions or whatever. And uh, that person can always step in and say, well, what Dr. Rossini really meant to say um, or add to what I forgot. So I think it's always good. I I really caution people to bring in more than two if possible, because I think Mm -hmm. as a patient, you're standing there, especially in medical hours, I think that's it. I mean, you're the expert, Jeff, but I think it's a huge mistake to
0: walk in with three or four people. Because Uh, right
1: now, the hair on the back of your neck is already up, right?
0: It's not intimate. I mean, I think if you walk in with four people, it almost feels like a Um, pylon, and it's not intimate. It should be an intimate setting, uh, particularly if the patient wants to become emotional. It's it's easier for them to become emotional when there are fewer people around. I mean, it's interesting when people want to have challenging conversations, um, not so much with, you know, medical errors or death and dying. But let's say they're breaking up uh, in in a relationship. um, Sometimes they'll consciously want to do it in a public place just because they realize it will make it less likely for someone to have an emotional outburst. I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to say, hey, look, I don't love you any longer. I'm leaving. (laughs) Um, Have a nice life do it at a restaurant because you realize it'll be a little bit um, more challenging for that person to have an insane outburst. Doesn't mean it'll never happen. <laughs> and, and if it does happen, then you certainly picked poorly. But I think in the context of healthcare, having the a, a smaller number of people in a more intimate setting ultimately sets the stage for a better long-term outcome. I don't think you necessarily need risk management uh, sitting in on an initial conversation it may be appropriate down the road but by and large when someone comes in from risk management the the assumption is that the hospital is just looking to limit or mitigate its its damages and they're not so much focused on the patient
1: uh, absolutely and you're, the message you're sending nonverbally verbally is that i'm not upset that i caused the medical error i'm um, here mostly to prevent you from suing or to limit the damages and Medicine is a one-on-one human-to-human interaction at every level. And uh, that's, you know, I talked about before changing one word uh, that can cause a relationship to build quickly. Uh, One of the things, uh, I don't know if it was you that we were just talking about the other day that I teach, is we've been conditioned to introduce ourselves as one of the I'm one of the pediatricians. I'm one of the neurosurgeons. uh, And that's the way I was taught. I did that for 10, 15 years. Until I started interviewing patient after patient after patient, they started saying to me, you know, that makes me seem like you're really not taking responsibility for my care. In other words, you're saying, listen, if anything goes wrong, I'm just one of the doctors here. I'm a small cog in a big wheel. and, in fact, we followed that up with asking a bunch of mothers. And I said, what makes you feel more comfortable? Someone coming into your child's room and, say, introducing themselves as one of the pediatricians? Mm-hmm. Or someone coming in saying, I'm introducing introduce themselves as the intern responsible
0: for <laughs> yeah. your baby? Yeah. you know
1: they pick the intern almost more than 50% of the time?
0: And well, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Keep going. Continue with your... So I, your I would thoughts. say to
1: them kind of jokingly with a smile on their face, like, you know an intern doesn't know anything, right?
0: <laughs> Particularly said, on July 1st. <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: And they said, yes, but that's my intern. She's taking responsibility for my baby's care. And I know that she'll have to check with her senior, but I just want somebody to say, and so now when I'm on at night and my... my partners do the same thing. I and I see a mother by a bedside. I'm the neonatologist who's responsible for your baby tonight. And you can see the difference in their face. It's amazing.
0: Just imagine how simple that is. I could train that to anyone in about one minute. Um, <laughs> well, may, maybe more, maybe not anyone in one minute, but for most people, I think they would pick up on that. They would understand the why. Why is that a helpful change in language, and how to do it—the the how. I, I don't. Th- I think people underestimate the power of language. I mean, um, relationships are built and destroyed. You know, marriage marriages are built and destroyed based on the types of words that are used. Countries go to a war over language. Words matter a lot. And what you've just described is oh, amazingly simple. Some things can be to make substantive and deep changes,
1: and that's what I love. I
0: mean, I, I'm, I'm
1: fascinated by communication, especially nonverbal, and that's why I just love teaching my workshops and and doing what I do. But um, it, it really is you can you can send such a different message to somebody even before you even say a word. Uh, the difference between sitting down and standing up, um, you know. I read a book once that said that there was a neuroscientist that said you, your your brain makes 350 million assessments of someone's body language per second that's amazing uh, but it makes sense right fight or flight you have to sew. so so uh, I, I tell doctors all the time just by changing one word or by the way you sit whether you're crossing your legs whether you're leaning over whether you're, it can change the whole message you know if 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 uh if you walk into a room and you have your legs crossed and you're leaning backwards mm-hmm. and there's a it's a you know it's an angry patient not a medical error maybe they're just angry because they haven't got a test result back you're going to calm the situation down but if i tell you that you have cancer mm-hmm. and my legs crossed and i'm leaning backwards i don't care if i say all the right words and say i'm sorry a hundred times your body language is saying hey did you see the yankee game yesterday so it's not going to go over well, and we don't think about that stuff, and that's why communication just fascinates me.
0: Well, I'm guessing in terms of nonverbal communication, if you walk into the room with your hand gripped around the doorknob, that doesn't send a signal that you're going to linger for a long conversation, does it?
1: (laughs) Exactly. There is a study that looked at patient's perception of how long you stayed in the room, Mm. and they found that if you sit down, the patient will perceive that you actually stayed twice as long.
0: So just imagine that, just by the mere, and just by the mere act of sitting down, you've doubled the perception of the time commitment. You may not have changed anything related to your time commitment, but you've adjusted the perception of the time commitment. Correct? Isn't, isn't that fascinating? And this has been well studied. Uh, and
1: you know, it drives me crazy, Jeff. I, I when I'm doing these lectures and workshops. In fact, when I give my lectures, sometimes I bring a chair onto the stage mm-hmm. and I I say, let me clue let me give you a clue. Chairs move.
0: <laughs> and because what do you, what do you I, mean by that? What do you mean by well, chairs move?
1: Well I, when I ask a doctor, you know, why why didn't you sit down? There's all there's two answers I get most. One is the first one is there was no chair around. So mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah. See. Now, if 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 you're the patient and there's no chair in the hospital bedroom, and I walk out and I ten yards outside that room after I see the patient, I'm going to go grab a chair. And I took the effort to grab a wheelie chair Mm -hmm. just ten yards. Already, that's appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to speak to me so much. He's willing to walk ten yards to get a chair. So it's actually better. And, and the second one I get is there was no time. And then I show them that actually you can actually save time by sitting on a chair. So so it always gets a little chuckle because people know that that's what they do, right? There's no chair, so I'm not going to go get one. Go get one. It's easy. It takes less than 10 seconds.
0: Plus, you get the um, you get the kudos for having stepped outside to bring the chair back in to send a particular.
1: <laughs> you, well. you look like a, you really, really want to get to know them. and That's the great thing about it.
0: I heard an ER doctor speaking about a informal study that he did, I think in his Oregon emergency room, he was part of a fairly sizable group and they were doing time studies just to see how long they actually spent with a patient compared to the patient's perception. And in and this is what he would do, this was part of his protocol. If And typically in the ER you've got labs that are being drawn and there's a long wait period and the labs come back when they come back. I mean, some come back more quickly than others. And what he would do is he would pop his head through the curtain and say, hey, Ms. Jones, we got your CBC, everything's good, still waiting on your chem panel, I'll get back with you soon. So, you know, he just popped his head in, send the signal, hey, I know you're there thinking about you, and gave partial information, and would do that maybe three times, but the total amount of time he spent with that particular patient, was about the same as his partners were spending with the patients if you just added them all up and his partners would pop their head in at the end and saying look we got everything back we got the cbc we got the chem panel we got uh, all this back and it's all normal good news etc and the outcome would be the same meaning that um you know the patient would be discharged but but the perception i think this is to your point the perception was that the doctor who popped his head in periodically subtextually saying, we're thinking about you, I know you're there and I'll deliver what I get when I get it. It was perceived that they spent twice as long with the patient, twice as long with the patient. Yet in reality, they didn't really spend any more time. Although perhaps you burn some more calories having to pop your head uh, in and out. But to your point, the perception can be altered with some minimal techniques that can be learned not too challenging to learn. Is that is that part of your message?
1: Yes, and actually that doctor is correct. If you look at, I'm trying to remember whether it was Press-Ganey or Gallup or Beryl Institute, uh, but multiple studies when they looked at, I think it was Press-Ganey, the top five predictors of patient satisfaction most likely to recommend. And uh, communication is always at number one. In fact, the top five uh, are all Uh, are all communication-related. But number four, and I think this was 2011 and again in 2017, was uh, kept you informed of delays. Mm. When you look at waiting room ER waiting times, uh, that's way down in the bottom 25% of predictors. So it's not how long you wait in the waiting room. It is whether they kept you informed of the delays. That's huge. Uh, you know, I, I always tell the story, next time your plane is delayed in the airport, uh, you'll see, and by the way, I just wanna let you know that I'm convinced that uh, airlines know the rule of breaking bad news is gradual because they never tell you your plane's delayed two hours. They tell you 30 minutes, then another 30 minutes, then another 15 minutes. And so I think they've read my book, but um, if your plane is delayed and you sit by the, the counter and you look at what people will come up one at a time to speak to the flight attendant and find out what's going on. Most of them don't ask when the flight is going off. Most of them ask, why is it delayed? They want to know why. So if you keep them informed, they get less angry. The airlines would be very, it would really behoove the airlines to say, hey, our landing gear is not locking. So we're going to be delayed. and you would say, take your time, right?
0: so. Yeah, my, my <laughs> conclusion with the landing gear is a problem or we have an engine problem is that that plane needs to spend some serious time in a hangar, meaning that yes. if, if that problem is solved in five minutes, I actually don't want to get on that plane. <laughs> right, the point is that most
1: patients, if they're in the waiting room and someone comes out to say, I'm really sorry we had a trauma, or the doctor had an emergency, most people are very reasonable. They get angry when they're sitting there and nobody's telling them anything.
0: Well, the other thing is that if you give, if you know that you're gonna be delayed by an hour, giving patients options, I think empowers them. It allows them to at least make a decision and it sends the message, you respect their time. So yes. if you're in the, op- look, you're in the operating room, you can't get out, okay? I mean, you've gotta make a choice. You're either gonna let the patient swim in blood or you're gonna fix the patient and deal with the waiting office later. But you, but there really is another choice. You can tell your office staff, I'm delayed. There's no way I'm going to be there in less than an hour. And then the patients now have some choices. They could either be aware that there's a problem in the OR, a minimum of an hour wait, and you're in the driver's seat. You can do one of several things. One is you can keep sitting there if you'd like. You can reschedule. Or give us your mobile number and we'll put you on a leash and give you a 15-minute heads up of when it's time to come back to the office. I think if you give them those three options, most people will triage according to their personality. Some will wait four hours for you. There are some that aren't going to wait five minutes, but they appreciate the fact that they at least can make that decision and move on. And there are others who just want to be able to use the time judiciously and not just sit in a chair and stew. They want to be able to go down the block or pick up their uh, pick up some food or who knows. There are a thousand different things. But you're sending the message that their time is valuable, too, and you want them to at least have some options, even if they're crappy options. Some options are better than no options.
1: It's all about communicating, and I don't understand. And I think we're getting away from that more and more. But uh, people are just very reluctant to communicate. And the more you communicate, the better chance you're going to have of having a good relationship, as you so said, have, in, in, in marriage, too, right? <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. So a neurosurgical buddy of mine was on vacation for, I think, three weeks and came back to the waiting, and he knew the night before this is going to be the office clinic from hell. He had, um, 65 patients to see and some of these were post-ops i mean it was a going to be a long day so um i think he had his office staff try to reschedule some of them you know just to cut the load Uh, but he knew regardless of what he did that there are going to be people that are waiting so how did he manage this he basically bought a bunch of ten dollar starbucks cards and As he walked into the room to defuse it, he immediately said, mea culpa, I've been on vacation for three weeks. You know, I had 60 patients scheduled today. I did my best to try and get you guys informed as to how long the delay would be so you could um, you can make a decision. But regardless, you waited. And I am so sorry for you, by the way. Here's a $10 Starbucks card to let you know that I at least, you know, walk the walk. I, I understand what you went through and I wouldn't have tolerated from, from my doctor. So I, I just get it. And he found that almost everyone, you know, hugged him and just said, I'll, I'll always wait for you. You're the best. Um, I mean, it was just kind of cool to see that type of reaction uh, from, from his patients. Now, he had set the stage because he he generally does have a good rapport with his patients to begin with. So he had invested a lot of effort on the front end, and now he was just getting the dividends. And and to him, just the ten dollar uh, Starbucks cards was the icing on the cake here. But
1: Absolutely it all worked out for
0: him. Yeah, yeah, yeah I very, thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, very good. I love that. We're we're getting uh, tight on time. I just want to close with a couple other questions for you, and, and some of this is kind of straightforward. But I've noticed that when I take a family member or I go to the doctor the there are two types there are there's one doctor who is eyes glued to his computer and not making any eye contact on me so he can't even see my body language he's basically listening and and entering data then there's another one who is doesn't even touch the electronic uh, medical record he's basically just Listening to me, and, and I'm guessing he'll deal with it later. And then, actually, I meant to include a third doctor who has a scribe in the room. So, the doctor is doing the back and forth and fully focused on me or my family member. And the scribe is doing the data entry, if you will. But I got to tell you, the one who is glued onto the computer without looking at me, my initial take, even if he's brilliant or she's brilliant, is that they're really not listening. They're kind of doing their thing, which is data entry. And I'm number two on the list. Uh, yeah, it's, I really, it's, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I want you to comment on that.
1: I really caution that when I do the patient experience workshops, uh, you know, it's been shown over and over again, there's actually multitasking is a myth, right? It's really multi-switching. So we know that We know that the human brain can't do two things at one time unless one of them is automatic, like walk and chew gum. Mm -hmm. Um, So it increases medical errors, that's well well documented. But the nonverbal message that you're sending, you are 100% correct, is uh, I'm I'm, I'm just, this is more important to put data entry in because I am in a rush. And the uh, great book that's famous uh, uh, that most doctors have read is uh, How Doctors Think. Dr. Grootman, um, talks about that, how many mistakes that we make uh, by training our doctors to think in algorithms and missing the nuances of what a patient is saying, that body language is, nonverbal language is 70% of language. And if you got your head in the computer, you're gonna miss a lot. So it's bad for the patient. It sends the wrong message to the patient. Your patient's effective scores are lousy. Uh, and you're going to miss something and you're probably more likely going to make an error. So, and I was at a hospital that I was consulting and we, uh, I went into one of their brand new buildings, Jeff, that uh, was their office building. And they were so proud that they had, uh, you know, built in laptops. In order for the doctor to type on the laptop, he or she's back had to be against the patient. So they, there was no way for the doctor. Man, like what who designed this uh, but I whether you have the laptop or not I I really would say do not you know multitask I love scribes if you can if you want to spend the money to get a quality scribe that's going to stick with you forever and knows how you want to write that's perfect because you can save time your scribe can put in what what's said but you're looking at that patient's eyes the whole time and you are picking up all the nuances. And if you're not looking at the patient, they're just gonna, they're gonna cut it short. They're not gonna give you a full history. Of, you know, Dr. Percy's not listening anyway, so I'm gonna get out of here. Yeah, what's the point? Yeah, it's really bad. I wish we can stop that, but you know, we're going through uh, electronic medical records. And in fact, my TED talk that I just finished giving in Phoenix a few weeks ago was about uh, the human connection can improve healthcare and how we're getting away from that with electronic medical records and uh, speed and how people are pushing us to see more and more patients. So we, we have to stop and it's not good on any level.
0: Yeah, electronic, yeah, don't get me started on, electri- on how electronic medical records have been implemented. I think that in theory, they are an excellent idea, but in practice, um, God, I don't, I think they were designed mostly as billing tools as a way to maximize revenue, and so to that end, it may very well have achieved its goals. But most of them are unreadable. A lot of the drop downs don't really um, describe what happened. So it, you're being forced to describe what what might not have happened. Um, if we could start all over again, I, I would I would love to start all over again. But I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's I think I think um, we're just going to have to live with what we have and figure out how to adjust to it.
1: The art of writing a narrative note is going away quickly. I was telling a story the other day. I had a uh, an attending physician when I was a, a, a neonatal fellow, and he used to write, you know, in those days, it was all handwritten notes. And I used to watch him. His name was Montessori. He was an amazing neonatologist. He'd sit there with a chart on his lap. He'd look up at the sky, take a deep breath, gather his thoughts, and in one paragraph wrote the most beautiful, inclusive note that said everything about the patient that was important and none of the crap. And I just remember the way he used to approach his notes, and now it's just click, click, click.
0: Yeah, the act of writing often forces you to think, and yes. the thinking, I think, makes you a better, well, doctor.
1: Yes, it it, it definitely makes my thoughts uh, together, puts my thoughts together. And if I didn't have to write notes, I I would go home more nervous that I forgot something.
0: Tony, you've been generous with your time. Any final thoughts for our listeners? And also, how can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: Uh, Yes, I would say my final thought is that that every one of us in medicine uh, needs to promote uh, a culture of better communication. And we need to bring up the next generation. And we need to admit when we're not good at it, just like any other procedure in medicine, and seek out training when, when it's appropriate. There's nothing embarrassing about saying, I'm not good at this particular task. And so I think we need to create that culture, especially with the young people. You know, I would say, uh, I'll, I'll ask my residents, did you call the mother? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, what did you say? And Jeff, you gotta see their eyes go, oh, what do you mean? You know, the message I'm sending to them is I want to know what how your communication skills are. So my message would be, let's start emphasizing communication skills. And yes, anybody can uh, reach me um, through my website, dorsiniway.com. Uh, my email is drorsini, drorsini at dorsiniway.com. Uh, and I get people that email me all the time and just say, hey, I have this situation you know, I didn't know what to say, you know, what's your advice and that kind of things. But we have uh, learning modules and we have in-person training programs for small groups all the way to major hospitals. And I'm always happy to help people.
0: So I would encourage our listeners to take advantage of this. If somebody is is going to show you or teach you how to deliver challenging or bad news, why wouldn't you want to learn that? I think it's a no-brainer. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll have your email address as well as your website in our show notes. And I hope you'll come back and we'll do it again.
1: Fantastic. I'm looking forward to having you on my podcast because uh, I know there's so much we have in common. Uh, and so that podcast, by the way, is called Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an I.C. Position." And I'm, I'm uh, eager to speak with you again, Jeff. This has been a really, really a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much. Appreciate Great. it. Bye-bye. Take care. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MedJust. That's one 877 med Just or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's IN as Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.